Could a GLP-1 receptor agonist be right for your adult patients with type 2 diabetes? Welcome to the 411 on a GLP-1. My name is Jim Gavin. I'm a clinical professor of medicine at Emory, and I also serve as chief medical officer for Healing Our Village in Atlanta. My main focus in the field of diabetes is in improved outcomes, especially for high-risk patients. And I am looking forward to our discussion today. This program is intended for clinicians. The information presented in this podcast is aligned with the views and opinions of the speakers and is sponsored by Novo Nordisk. This podcast is not to be used as medical advice and is intended for educational purposes only. In this podcast, we're going to discuss results from a clinical trial designed to assess the glycemic control, efficacy, and safety of a GLP-1 receptor agonist in patients with type 2 diabetes and moderate renal impairment. I am pleased to be joined by my longstanding colleagues, Dr. Pablo Mora and Dr. Bob Bush. Pablo, why don't you introduce yourself to our audience? Thank you, Jim. I am currently an endocrinologist at North Texas Diabetes located in Plano, Texas. I'm also a clinical professor with the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center at Dallas, Texas. My clinical focus has been pharmacological therapies for type 1 and type 2 diabetes. I am very excited about today's discussion. Thank you, Pablo. Bob? Well, it's a pleasure to be here with both of you. I've been a practicing endocrinologist for over 30 years. I'm the director of clinical research with a group of 15 practicing endocrinologists in Albany, New York. And part of the research I've done is with the clinical trial program, which we'll be talking about later in our discussion. Thank you both for joining me here today. To begin, I'd like to discuss type 2 diabetes and chronic kidney disease, or CKD. As we are all aware, diabetes is a significant health problem in the United States. In 2018, it is estimated that 13% of all U.S. adults had diabetes, with the vast majority, 90 to 95%, having type 2 diabetes. It is also well established that CKD is often comorbid with type 2 diabetes. Pablo, can you talk to us a little bit about the prevalence of CKD and type 2 diabetes? Sure. Let me start by reminding everyone that type 2 diabetes is one of the leading risk factors for CKD. According to estimates from the 2015-16 National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey, or NHANES, data, the age-adjusted prevalence of CKD was nearly twice as high among adults with diabetes compared to those without diabetes. I'm sure that this is not uncommon, but in my patient population, many of my patients are at some stage of CKD, making it one of the most common chronic complications that I see in my practice. Bob, what factors are most important to you when selecting medications for glycemic control for your patients with type 2 diabetes? Do you have any special considerations for your patients with type 2 diabetes and renal impairment? Well, A1C control should be a priority for our patients with type 2 diabetes. And I also want to look at weight change data because that's a concern for many patients with type 2 diabetes. 
kidney function is another factor to consider, as I may have to give a lower dose of medication depending on their estimated glomerular filtration rate or EGFR. We also want to make sure that the drug's efficacy is not impacted by the renal function because in certain cases, a patient may struggle with some glycemic control therapy if their kidney function is impaired. Pablo, what about you? Sure. But Jim, let me also remind you that I also look at the interplay between the comorbidities of these patients. As you know, CKD doesn't live in the abstract or in isolation, and it's so important that we have a conversation with patients about the concerns and comorbid conditions, such as renal impairment, when selecting a glycemic control therapy for patients with type 2 diabetes. I should add that guidelines will have more specific information about choosing the best medications for your patients with type 2 diabetes. Well, let me thank you both for those insights, uh, because as I said before, we will dive into the clinical trial for Rebelsis, evaluating glycemic control in patients with type 2 diabetes and moderate renal impairment. I should note that Rebelsis is not indicated to treat CKD or moderate renal impairment. Before we start our discussion, I'd like to first talk to you about the first and only oral GLP-1 receptor agonist, Rebelsis also known as semaglutide tablets, 7 milligrams or 14 milligrams. Rebelsis is indicated as an adjunct to diet and exercise to improve glycemic control in adults with type 2 diabetes. Rebelsis is not recommended as a first-line therapy for patients who don't have adequate glycemic control on diet and exercise because of the uncertain relevance of the rodent C-cell tumor findings as they relate to humans. Rebelsis has not been studied in patients with a history of pancreatitis. For patients with a history of pancreatitis, consider a different anti-diabetes therapy. And it's not indicated for use in patients with type 1 diabetes. Now, let's go through the important safety information for rebelsis. The boxed warning that accompanies rebelsis talks about the potential risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. In rodents, it has been shown that semaglutide can cause dose-dependent and treatment-duration-dependent thyroid C-cell tumors including medullary thyroid carcinoma, or MTC, at clinically relevant exposures. Because of the uncertain relevance of rodent studies with humans, rebelsis is contraindicated in patients with a personal or a family history of MTC and in patients with multiple endocrine neoplasia syndrome type 2, or MEN2. While you should counsel your patients about the warning and symptoms of thyroid tumors, you don't need to proactively draw calcitonin levels or do ultrasound of the neck. However, due to this risk, patients should be further evaluated if their serum calcitonin is measured and found to be elevated or thyroid nodules are noted on physical examination or neck imaging. Rebelsis is also contraindicated in patients with a prior serious hypersensitivity reaction to semaglutide 
or to any of the excipients in rebelsis. Serious hypersensitivity reactions, including anaphylaxis and angioedema, have been reported with rebelsis. Pancreatitis has been reported in clinical trials, so you need to monitor patients. I educate them about signs and symptoms of pancreatitis, such as severe abdominal pain, particularly if it's persistent, radiating to the back, and which may or may not be accompanied by vomiting. If pancreatitis is suspected, discontinue rebelsis and initiate appropriate management. If pancreatitis is confirmed, do not restart rebelsis. In a pooled analysis of glycemic control trials with rebelsis, 4.2% of patients reported diabetic retinopathy-related adverse reactions compared to 3.8% with Comparator. In another two-year trial with semaglutide injection involving patients with type 2 diabetes and high cardiovascular risk, more events of diabetic retinopathy complications occurred in patients treated with semaglutide injection at 3% compared to 1.8% with placebo. The absolute risk was larger in the patients who had previous diabetic retinopathy. Rapid improvement in glucose control has been associated with a temporary worsening of diabetic retinopathy. Patients with a history of diabetic retinopathy should be monitored for progression of diabetic retinopathy. Patients receiving rebelsis in combination with an insulin secretagogue, for example, sulfonylurea or insulin, may have an increased risk of hypoglycemia, including severe hypoglycemia. Inform patients using these concomitant medications of the risk of hypoglycemia and educate them on the signs and symptoms of hypoglycemia. There have been post-marketing reports of acute kidney injury and worsening of chronic renal failure, sometimes even requiring hemodialysis in patients treated with GLP-1 receptor agonists, including semaglutide. Some of these events have been reported in patients without known underlying renal disease. So those are the patients. You know who they are in your practice, with whom you're going to talk about hydration. You're going to make sure if they have gastrointestinal or GI side effects, they're going to call you back because people with chronic renal failure can have a worsening of their renal function and acute kidney injury if they experience nausea, diarrhea, vomiting, and volume depletion. There are even instances where people without pre-existing renal impairment can suffer acute damage under these conditions. So we need to monitor renal function when initiating or escalating the dose of rebelsis for patients experiencing severe GI reactions. Serious hypersensitivity reactions, such as anaphylaxis and angioedema, 
have been reported in patients treated with rubelsis. If hypersensitivity reactions occur, discontinue use of rubelsis. Treat promptly per standard of care and monitor until signs and symptoms resolve. Use caution in a patient with a history of angioedema or anaphylaxis with another GLP-1 receptor agonist. Acute events of gallbladder disease, such as cholelithiasis or cholecystitis, have been reported in GLP-1 receptor agonist trials and post-marketing. In placebo-controlled trials, cholelithiasis was reported in 1% of patients treated with rubelsis, seven milligrams. Cholelithiasis was not reported in rubelsis, 14 milligrams, or placebo-treated patients. If cholelithiasis is suspected, gallbladder studies and appropriate clinical follow-up are indicated. The most frequently reported adverse reactions occurring in 5% or more of rubelsis-treated patients were GI-related, nausea, abdominal pain, diarrhea, decreased appetite, vomiting, and constipation. Patients who receive rebelsis in combination with an insulin secretagogue like a sulfonylurea or an insulin may be at an increased risk of hypoglycemia. Therefore, consider reducing the dose of concomitantly administered insulin secretagogue, such as sulfonylurea, or insulin to reduce this risk. Rebelsis delays gastric emptying, so there is a concern of impacting the absorption of other oral medication. Closely follow Rebelsis administration instructions when co-administering with other medications and consider increased monitoring for medications with a narrow therapeutic index, such as levothyroxine. Available data with rubelsis are not sufficient to determine a drug-associated risk for major birth defects, miscarriage, or other adverse maternal or fetal outcomes. Based on animal reproduction studies, there may be risks to the fetus from exposure to rebelsis. Use only if the potential benefit justifies the potential risk to the fetus. There are no data on the presence of semaglutide in human milk, the effects on the breastfed infant, or milk production. Because of the unknown potential for serious adverse reactions, in the breastfed infant due to possible accumulation of snack, which is the absorption enhancer that is co-formulated with semaglutide, advise patients that breastfeeding is not recommended while taking rebelsis. You also want to have pre-pregnancy planning so that any woman contemplating pregnancy stops rebelsis at least two months before their planned pregnancy to account for the long washout period for semaglutide. It's also important to note the safety and efficacy of rebelsis hasn't been established in pediatric patients younger than age 18 years old. For more information 
and to access the Rebelsis prescribing information, including boxed warning, please visit rebelsispro.com or see your Novo Nordisk representative. Now let's get into the details of the clinical trial that assessed the glycemic control efficacy and safety of Rebelsis in patients with type 2 diabetes and moderate renal impairment. This was one of the many trials from the Pioneer program, which provided an overview of the Rebelsis clinical profile across the continuum of type 2 diabetes care. Bob, can you tell us about the study design for this trial? Sure, Jim. The trial is called Pioneer 5. It was a randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled phase 3A trial in 324 patients with type 2 diabetes and moderate renal impairment who are on metformin or sulfonylurea or both or basal insulin with or without metformin. Now, some of the key inclusion criteria for Pioneer 5 was that patients had to be 18 or older, had to be diagnosed with type 2 diabetes for at least three months, and be on a stable dose of metformin or sulfonylurea or both, or basal insulin with or without metformin for at least three months. For those patients on basal insulin, the trial protocol recommended a 20% decrease in basal insulin dose after randomization into their treatment group to decrease the risk of hypoglycemia. In terms of baseline A1C, patients had to be between 7 and 9.5%, and the EGFR threshold was between 30 to 59 milliliters per minute per 1.73 meters squared. Patients were randomized to Rebelsis 14 milligrams or placebo once daily. Randomization was stratified by background glucose-lowering medication and renal function, whether it was chronic kidney disease stage 3A or 3B. In the Rebelsis arm, Rebelsis was initiated at 3 mg once daily with a dose escalation to 7 mg after 4 weeks, and after an additional 4 weeks at 7 mg, Rebelsis was titrated to 14 mg. The primary endpoint was the mean change in A1C from baseline to week 26. Secondary endpoints included mean change in body weight from baseline to week 26 and the proportion of patients achieving an A1C of less than 7% at week 26. Thanks, Bob. Pablo, what were the baseline characteristics for the trial? Yeah, in Pioneer 5, the mean age participants was 70 years with a rough equal percentage of males and females, and the mean duration of type 2 diabetes was 14 years. These baseline characteristics were similar between treatment groups. So what did we see in terms of efficacy? Yes, we saw that Rebelsus 14 milligrams demonstrated a statistical greater mean A1C reduction from baseline to week 26 versus placebo, starting at a baseline A1C of just about 8%, After 26 weeks of treatment, the mean reduction of A1C for the placebo group was 0.2%, compared to a 1% A1C reduction for the Rebelsus 14 milligram arm. So at week 26, in adult patients with type 2 diabetes and renal impairment on metformin, sulfonylurea, or both, or basal insulin with or without metformin, treatment with Rebelsus, 14 milligrams, resulted in a statistically greater A1C reduction than placebo. 
How did treatment with rebelsis impact the patient's ability to achieve an A1C of less than 7%? This is an important measure for patients, and as clinicians, we are more frequently evaluated on this quality metric. Yes, a greater proportion of patients treated with rebelsis achieve an A1C less than 7% compared to those on placebo. At the end of the study, 58% of the patients in the rebelsus arm achieve an A1C of less than 7% versus 23% of patients in the placebo arm. And this was also statistically significant. So more than half of the patients in the rebelsus arm achieved an A1C of less than 7% compared to less than a quarter of the patients in the placebo arm. Now, another important clinical metric that many of our patients with type 2 diabetes struggle with is weight. Bob, were there significant results regarding weight change in these patients with type 2 diabetes and moderate renal impairment after treatment with rebelsis? Well, sure. Weight is a very important concern for patients with type 2 diabetes and renal impairment. My patients are often concerned that better glycemic control would come with the baggage of weight gain, particularly those familiar with older medications such as insulin or sulfonylurea. So while rebelsis is not indicated for weight loss, the data showed a statistically significant superior weight reduction in patients with rebelsis compared to placebo. Patients treated with rebelsis lost an average of seven and a half pounds compared with just under two pounds in patients treated with placebo. So to sum up the results of the Pioneer 5 trial, 26 weeks of treatment with rebelsis, 14 milligrams, in patients with type 2 diabetes and moderate renal impairment resulted in superior A1C reduction, a significantly greater proportion of patients achieving A1C goal of less than 7%, and statistically significant superior weight reduction when compared to patients treated with placebo. I should also note that in Pioneer 5, overall renal function remained unchanged in both treatment groups throughout the trial. Now, in terms of side effects, the most frequent reported adverse reactions for rebelsis seen in this trial were nausea, constipation, vomiting, diarrhea, dyspepsia, decreased appetite, and headache. 15% of patients discontinued rebelsis 14 milligrams due to adverse reactions compared to 5% for patients receiving placebo. Now, you said that rebelsis was initiated at 3 milligrams once daily with a dose escalation to 7 milligrams and then to 14 milligrams. But are there any recommended dosing adjustments when using rebelsis in patients with moderate renal impairments, Bob? Well, that's a great question. Based on the pharmacokinetic studies, rebelsis dose adjustments are not recommended for patients with moderate renal impairment. And Jim, as you already mentioned, there have been post-marketing reports of acute kidney injury and worsening of chronic renal failure which may sometimes require hemodialysis in patients treated with a GLP-1 receptor agonist, including semaglutide. Monitor renal function when initiating or escalating doses of rebelsis in patients reporting severe adverse gastrointestinal reactions. So we mentioned that the average age for this clinical trial was about 70 years old. 
making this population older than what we have seen in previous pioneer trials. Pablo, what has been your clinical experience in regard to using rebelsis in the more senior population? Are there any extra considerations you take into account when working with an older patient with type 2 diabetes and moderate renal impairment? Is a dose adjustment recommended for patients aged 65 or older? That's a great point, Jim. Uh, it is true that our patients are living longer with this chronic disease. That makes this data from Pioneer 5 that we're discussing today very relevant as we're seeing patients in their late decades in life. Rebelsus dose adjustments are not recommended for these growing populations of patients aged 65 and over, but greater sensitivity of some older individuals cannot be ruled out. So based on the results of Pioneer 5 and what we now know about rebelsus, would you prescribe rebelsus after metformin to improve glycemic control for your adult patients with type 2 diabetes, including those patients who also have moderate renal impairment? I consider rebelsus early therapy for glycemic control in all my patients. And what about you, Bob? Well, not only would I, but I do. Because of the effects we discussed, the A1C goal attainment, the lowering of blood sugar, the data on weight reduction, and understanding the safety profile the drug has. And of course, I counsel the patient on the possible GI side effects and would modify therapy if it's a persistent issue. Thank you very much for those responses. I've had similar experiences as you both using rebelsus for glycemic control in patients with type 2 diabetes, and rebelsus has been a welcome therapeutic choice in my practice. Pablo and Bob, thank you for your time and thank you for joining me here today. For more information and to access the rebelsus prescribing information, including boxed warning, please visit rebelsuspro.com or see your Novo Nordisk representative. This concludes this episode of Could a GLP-1 Receptor Agonist Be Right for Your Adult Patients with Type 2 Diabetes? I'm your host, Jim Gavin. Thank you for joining us today on the 411 on a GLP-1.